I'm going to be starting off in Psalms chapter 50. Psalms 50. The mighty one, God, the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to where it sets. From Zion, perfect in beauty, God shineth forth. Our God comes and will not be silent. Fire devours before him and around him in the tempest rages. He summons the heavens above and the earth that he may judge his people. Gather with me this consecrated people who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. And the heavens proclaim his righteousness, for he is a God of justice. Listen, my people, and I will speak. I will testify against you, Israel. I am God, your God. I bring no charges against you concerning your sacrifice or concerning your burnt offerings, which are ever before me. I have no need for a bull from your stall or your goats or your pens or your every animal in the forest. Every animal in the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird on the mountains and the insects in the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not have told you. For the world is mine and all is in it. I do not eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats. Sacrifice thank offerings to God Fulfill your vows to the Most High and call on me on the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you will give me honor. Now this is a request to sermon and we got it like at the end of October, but you don't tap into Christmas and, you know, we, but we don't back away from requested sermons. So if you're watching on the internet, this is one of those sermons you're going to get two, guns of, two barrels of the shotgun. But you got to hear it with grace because it's going to be given with grace. We'd never back away from a requested sermon. May not do it the week you request it, but we will cover it. Now, if you're not used to that, what it is is if you don't know something of the Bible, ask and we'll look at what God's holy word says about it. We're, nothing's we can't look at. Now, you cannot, bear with me on this, you cannot follow the king without paying a price. After all, he went to the cross for us and we, have we a right to escape sacrifice and suffering? No. In this section of scripture, the Lord explains his rightful demands and makes, that he makes on those who want to trust him and be his disciples. Now, you're not going to get your normal story at the beginning of the sermon, because I always like to give you a story in modern day that goes in. You're going to get that at the end of the sermon. Today, we're going to go to the book of Matthew for your, what I would call, story to apply to life. Because Jesus dealt with a man like this. this now, before I read this, this is the only time can I say that again? This is the only time that these instructions were given in the entire Bible. Now, the Bible is history. The Bible is poetry. The Bible is prophecy. The Bible is knowledge. And what we are looking at here is not something to apply to everybody in the world. This is to be applied to this one man. So when I start reading this, Far too often, preachers like to, or ministers, or they, they will twist something out of context. We're taught one only teaching in all the Bible. 
does not make a theology, but it does show us a challenge. Matthew chapter 19. Just then a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good, Jesus replied. There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones, he inquired. Jesus replied, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you should not give false testimony, honor your mother and father, love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, If you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. The young man heard this and went away sad because he had great wealth. Now, this is also recorded in the book of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And when you put all, they all record this event. And when we combine all the factors, because I'm not reading them all to you this morning, we learn that this man was rich. He was young and a ruler, and he was probably a ruler of the synagogue. We can certainly commend this man for coming publicly to Christ and asking about external matters. He seemed to have no ulterior motive and was willing to listen and learn and sadly, he made the wrong decision. The event seems to develop around several important questions. What good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? The man was obviously sincere, though his approach to salvation was centered on works and not faith. But this was actually to be expected among the Jews of that day. However, in spite of his position in society, his morality, and his religion, he felt a definite need for something more. But our Lord's reply did not focus on salvation. Now hear it out. It did not focus on salvation. He forced the young man to address, to think, seriously about the word good he had used in addressing Jesus. Only God is good. Jesus said, do you believe that? Do you believe that I am good? Therefore, I am God. If Jesus was one of the many religious teachers in history, then his words carry no more weight or than the pronouncements of any other religious leader. But if Jesus is good, then he is God. And we'd better heed what he says. Why did Jesus bring up the commandments here? Did, did he actually teach that people would receive eternal life by obeying God's laws? If anyone could keep the commandments, he certainly could enter into a life. But no one can keep God's commandments perfectly. So why did he bring them up? Romans chapter 3, verse 20 says to all who will read it, 
Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall be no flesh be justified in his sight. For the law is the knowledge of sin. Jesus did not introduce the law to this young man of how, how to be saved, so he could show him how to be saved, but to show him that he needed to be saved. In the book of James, it tells us that. The law is a mirror that reveals what we are. It's only a mirror. Now the young man said, which commandment? Which commandment the young man asked? Was the young man being evasive? I really don't think so. But he's making a mistake. For one part of God's law cannot be separated from another part. To classify God's laws into lesser and greater is to miss the purpose of the law. Whoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend one point of it is guilty of it all. That's tough teaching. Think when you really, I'm trying to be nice today because we got an empty house and I don't want to hit you with both barrels, but that's tough teaching. Now, if you want to read those words, that's James chapter 2, verse 10. The law represents the authority of God. And to disobey what we think is a minor law still rebels against God's authority. Of course, this young man only thought of external obedience. He forgot all about the attitudes of the heart. Jesus had taught in the Sermon on the Mount that hatred was the moral equivalent of murder and that lust was the equivalent of adultery. We rejoice this, actually, this man had good manners and good morals, but we do regret that he did not see his sin. He did not repent of his sin and then trust Jesus. Now, you may not have noticed this, but this is very important. This is very important to this event. The one commandment that especially applied to this young man, Jesus did not quote. Thou shall not covet, which is Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. Yeah, it's 17. I'm pretty, I'm 99, it's 17. Write it down, check me out, look it up. 2017. The young man should have pondered all the commandments and not just the ones Jesus quoted. He was looking for easy discipleship. And we have a lot in this world right now that are looking for easy discipleship. And he was being dishonest with himself. I believe his testimony was sincere as far as he knew, but he did not permit the light of the word to penetrate deeply enough. Jesus, now, Jesus felt a sudden love for this man, which is recorded in Mark chapter 10, verse 21. And he continued to try to help him. After he failed, he continued. He loved the man. He tried to show him more. 10, 21, check it out. Nowhere in the Bible 
Are we taught that a sinner is saved by selling his goods and giving the money away? That is not taught. Jesus never told Nicodemus to do this or any other sinner whose story is recorded in the Gospels. This is the only place in God's holy word that was, it was told to a person, and this was for this young man only. Jesus knew that this man, young man was covetous. He loved material wealth. And by asking him to sell his goods, Jesus was forcing him to examine his own heart and determine his priorities. Which all of us, how am I going to word this? This man had lots of commendable qualities. This young man still truly did not love God, though, with all his heart. Possessions were his God. He was unable to obey, to obey the command, go and sell, and come and follow. Allow me to be very clear here. Nowhere in the Bible is a person condemned because they have worked hard and made something of themselves. The Bible shares with us sitting here today great people who did that. Queen Esther or, or Abraham was absolutely a wealthy man. Isaac, Jacob. Jacob was wealth. If you did his, he was monstrously wealthy. Solomon. Oh, and Joseph. Oh, and Lydia. I love Lydia. The Lydia, Lydia solid on the purple cloth. She ran a business. She ran the most expensive business. She was absolutely wealthy. They never were gotten after for being wealthy. It's where their heart was. This young man we are looking at today went away grieved, but he could have gone away with great joy and peace. We cannot serve two masters. We clearly are told this in Matthew chapter 6, 20, verse 24. We surely, we can, uh, I'm, I'm going to be careful here. No, no, I'm not going to be careful. We can be sure, apart from Christ, even the material possessions of life have no lasting pleasure. It is good to have things, money, the money can buy and provide. And we do not lose things that money cannot buy. Unless this rich ruler eventually turned to Christ. He died without salvation, one of the richest men in the cemetery. So let's move to our main part of our message today and start with this comment. And this is a good comment. If God is all powerful and all knowing, why does he need my help and my money? And that is a legitimate question. Why would an all-powerful God, why, think about this, why would an all-powerful and all-knowing God need any of my money? Need my money. And the answer to that question is in the 50th Psalm that we read earlier in the service. God declares Every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds in the hills and all that moves in the field. If I were hungry, 
I would not tell you, for the world in its fullness are mine. I do not eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats. Those words are Psalms 50 verses 10 and 13. In other words, God has no need for our offerings. I mean, what do you get for a God who owns everything? He doesn't need anything. It's all his. But of course, that raises the question. If God doesn't need my offerings, why does he ask for them? And he does ask for them. In Proverbs chapter 3, verse 9, God said, Honor the Lord with your wealth and the first fruits of your produce. Your, and, and then it goes on. Then it goes on. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Now in Malachi chapter 3, God tells the Jews, oh, this is tough teaching. You are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and your contributions. You are cursed with a curse. For you are robbing me. The whole nation of you bring the full tithe into the storehouse and there will be food in my house. And then put me to the test, the Lord says. If I will not open up the windows of heaven and pour out to you and pour down on you blessings until there are no more need. And that is found in Malachi chapter 3, verses 8 through 10. So what's going on here? Why does God, who doesn't need my offerings, get so hot and bothered if I don't give it to him? Well, I'm going to give you a couple stories here. I'm going to, now, I'm going to tell you a short story. I have come to know this man. He works at one of the restaurants. And no, it's not Famous Dave's, so don't go picking on Famous Dave's. Because you, some of you know I might like to go there. He said he saw people from church in this town acting very unchristian-like. Um, especially, you know, when they're going right after the lunch, right after church, you know, they run to church right after lunch, right? And they're all dressed up. They're wearing cross necklaces and they're judging other people in the restaurant and they're being rude and demanding of the waitress staff, the waiter staff. And he said, I've worked at restaurants where I saw this firsthand that the church crowd is the worst tippers in the world. And actually, mathematically, we are the worst tippers in a restaurant in the world on Sunday that no waiter wants to or waitress wants to work that. That's the day of the week. Nobody wants to work if you're a waiter or waitress. And ask them. We're the worst tippers. Now, please remember his words when you go out to eat. Because on Sunday, it's us. We're the ones out eating. And now, 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 let me be honest now. And very, and too often, churchgoers are exactly that. The Sunday lunch crown, which is 95% or so, are coming from a church service, waiters and waitresses know that you're coming from a church service. I mean, that's where the Sunday lunch crowd comes from. And the church is called to be the light to the world, not a baseball bat 
Okay? We're, you know, be nice on Sunday. And, 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 and on the side, don't be a bad tipper on Sunday. I always throw an extra money on Sunday just because they get, I want to be a good witness. Waiters and waitresses often know you're a churchgoer, especially on Sunday afternoon. And if your tips are small, that's a really, it's a bad witness for Christ. I'm sorry. It, it truly is in their mind because if they're not saved, it's tough. It's a black mark on your faith, actually. Now, it's worth asking, if you give an extra dollar to, isn't it worth it to make Jesus look good on Sunday? I mean, my best tipping day is Sunday. I just do. I want you to just think about it. Now, with that said, I want you to notice something here. This man, the man I'm talking about at the restaurant, talked about Christians being judgmental and rude. And too often, we are judgmental and rude. We can come across that way. But notice he gives a, the big illustration is how he can tell Christians are acting unchristian. Is, and what's his big complaint? He says, what's, he, what's Christians, what have we done to upset them the most? Right? They're stingy on their tipping of waitresses. And that is his measuring rod. Right or wrong, that's how he measures us. He's saying you can tell they're not very Christian by how they handle their money. And he is right, but not the way he measures. Not the way he measures. You can tell a lot about a person how they spend their money. What lies at the heart of that Bible teaching about our offerings. Show anybody your bank account, and by looking at it, that person will see what is important to you. That's just the math of your dollars. To you personally. Now, part of the problem here is that our restaurant waiter has misunderstood what the Bible says about Christians. A lot of people in this world that we live in have been misled in believing that when a person becomes a Christian, presto, change, oh, they're all sweetness and light. There are a lot of baby Christians out there, and some never grow up. They, they believe that they're never going to be rude or judgmental. They're never going to lose their temper. They're never going to think or say anything wrong. They're never going to be selfish with their money or greedy or... You can go on and on. But that's basically not true. People never come out of baptismary fully matured and ready to handle life. They come out as a brand new baby in Christ and we got to have a little patience. You are not the same as when you started your walk with Christ. You've grown, you matured, and if you haven't, you're in trouble. Now granted, our objective is that things don't happen. Becoming a Christian is not where we magically transform into a sinless person when you walk out of the baptistry. Becoming a Christian is a place where we begin to allow God to transform us. To, to ask Jesus to forgive us and to be our Lord and the Holy Spirit, we allow him inside us and he begins to tinker with us. I love the tinkering. Think about this, the sidetrack from the sermon. 
when you first became a Christian, what you thought was a sin and what you think of sins now is totally different because you matured. I saw a meme on the internet. Jesus, I am a Christian. Yes, I love Jesus. But no, I'm not a perfect person. And Jesus is still working on me. And they had this little kid underneath the car engine working with his dad, you know, with engines and tools. Now, for some of you, that's not exciting. I thought it was just the most hilarious thing I ever saw. It, they both had plumber's cracks. It was just hilarious. I was, I laughed. And I need a good laugh this week. This week's not been a laughing week. This is a good, it was a good laugh. One of the ways Jesus works on changing us and changing me was about my money and how I use it. And there's at least three things he uses money to teach me and you. First, he expects an offering from us to teach us to remember that God is God and I am not. That's what Psalms, the 50th Psalm tells us. For every beast in the forest of mine, the cattle on a thousand hills, I know all the birds of the hills, and, and, and it moves, and all, all that moves in the field is his. And if I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. And once again, that's Psalms, chapter 50, verses 10 and 12. You don't have to tell you he's hungry. So all the money in my wallet belongs to God. Actually does. All the money in my bank account belongs to God. All my 401k belongs to God. All my possessions belong to God. All my Bibles belong to Him. I keep giving them away. Sidebar here, the secondhand bookstores that have all the Gideon Bibles in it, my histories, I always buy them all. Okay, I just go in and buy the Bibles and then I just hand them away. And if they're rot, terrible, I won't hand them away. But I, everyone gets a little Gideon Testaments. Man, they always went in my pocket so I can hand it out. Everything I got is his. I'll even loan you my car, my truck. I'll loan you whatever I got because it's his. It is his, not mine. In fact, being a Christian, everything, I, I've turned everything over to him. I don't own anything. It's all his, and he, what he's asking us to do is give a portion back to acknowledge what he's done for me. Now, John Maxwell, if you don't know John Maxwell, he's a good Wesleyan minister. He actually had Skyline Church, but he's reaching more people in the business world. Yeah, uh, he's, he's, I'm Wesleyan, he's Wesleyan. I mean, this, that, but he went to the business world because he could reach people. In his book, Seven Principles for Sex, Successful Stewardship, he tells a story. A man who took his kids to a fast food restaurant. And it was not him, but he tells the story. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The kid sat down to eat. He smelled the fries in front of his youngest son. And he reached over and he picked up a fry. Any of you ever done that? You know what I'm talking about? You know that smell of fresh, hot French fries, right? And to his surprise, his boy pushed his hand away. Dad, don't take my fries. And the dad was stunned. He thought to himself, my son does not know where those fries came from. 
He does not realize that about five minutes ago, I went to the counter, put my hand in my pocket, pulled out some money, and bought those fries, and I am the source of his fries. My son does not understand that if I wanted to, I could take those fries away from him. He doesn't realize that if I wanted to, I could walk over to the counter and buy a dozen more orders of french fries and cover them with french fries. He doesn't even know I don't need the french fries because I'm fat. I wanted them. If I wanted my own, I'd go buy them. What he really wanted from his son was his willingness to share. He wanted him to share with him what he'd already given him. So this is the first lesson from God. God asked people for an offering is because he wants us to give back a portion of what we receive from him, thus to acknowledge that he is God and we are not. Incidentally, that is why too many Christians are rude and judgmental. They have forgotten who God is. Now, the second reason God re requires an offering, so we'll understand the concept that God is God and money is not. Well, that's a tough one. Money is not. Jesus said, no one can serve two masters, for neither you will either hate one and love the other, but or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other, you cannot serve money and God or God and money. Those words are found in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, for all to read even to this day. You can't serve two. Or as the book of Hebrews puts it, keep your lives, fr lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And that is found in the book of Hebrews chapter 13, verses five. You see, the giving of our offering is designed to help us, to free us from the love of money. It is designed to help us depend upon God rather than depending on our money. He'll never leave us, nor he'll never forsake us, but money will. Now, the reason so many people don't tithe is they don't trust God. They look at their bank account and say, I can't part with that, I, I need that. Or why would, they, why would they think like that? Because money has become their God. And when that happens, people who serve their bank account tend to lead less charitable lives. Now, you can check this out, the Washington Times, I did not get the right date of the paper. I normally always put the right, correct date on the paper, but I could not download it. So it's June 27th, 2002. June 27, 2002, for those who wish to check me out, according to the Washington Times, Americans who help religious congregations gave more money and time to secular charities than even the people who worked on such causes. The study found that religious giving households in 20, year 2000 gave 87.5% of all charitable contributions in our nation. Let me say that again. The study found that religious giving households 
in the year 2000 gave 87.5% of all money given in our nation. In other words, these folks gave an offering to church that taught them to use their money to use other good causes. They don't love their money and they gave their money for God. Churchgoers gave 87.5% of all money given. Ask any major charity. They target churchgoers. They know where they get their money from. It's just the bottom line of math. I mean, stingy people don't give away money. You know all these dog commercials? They're all done at churchgoers. I mean, all these other commercials. Look how they look at their wording. Now, the last reason God wants us to give him offering is to help us understand God is God and he can supply all our needs. Now, notice that God declared in Psalms 50, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform the vows to the Most High and call upon in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you will give me glory. Now that is Psalms 50, 14 through 15. After God got done telling the Israelites he didn't need their offerings in chapter 50, he basically declares, if you do it anyway, do it anyway and see if I can supply your needs. That's the same kind of promise God made in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 10. God declared, give me your first fruits and your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Or Malachi chapter 3, verse 10, when God accused the Jews of stealing their tithes. Bring the full tithe in the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby I put me to the test. It's the only thing God ever said test him on. Look through the Bible. He never told you a testimony on anything else besides this. Testify in the Lord of hosts. I will open the windows of heaven and you pour down blessings. Jesus said, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. That's Matthew 6, 33. Notice that Jesus said, seek the kingdom of God first. First. When? First. Then God will do things unto me. In other words, if you trust me, I'll supply your needs. The whole point is here is God uses our offerings to change us. Does that make sense? He doesn't need it. He uses it as a tool to change us. We, because otherwise, money will eventually run our lives and ruin our lives. Now, this is James D. Rockefeller. I want to introduce you to this man. I told you to get a story, right? He was the very first person in America to reach the status of a billionaire. Actually, first person in the world, in modern world. Although Job, would, if you did the math, would have done that first. At age 23, he became a millionaire. In age 50, he was a billionaire. And every decision and attitude and relationship was tailored to create his personal power wealth. But three years after he became a billionaire, at age 53, he became ill. 
his entire body was racked with pain and he lost every hair on his head. That's why I kind of like his story. He was in complete agony. The world's only billionaire could buy anything he wanted, but he could only digest milk and crackers. An associate wrote, he could not sleep, he could not smile, nothing in his life meant anything to him. His, his, his personal, highly developed physicians told me he's going to be dead at 54. And he had personal physicians that only took care of him. He was going to be dead at 54. The year passed and agonizingly slow for him. And as he approached death, he woke up one morning with a vague remembrance of a dream. You should read his book. It's wonderful. And he could barely recall the dream, but he knew he had to do something and could not take any of his success with him into the next world. The man who could control the business world suddenly realized he was not in control of his own life. And he was left with a choice. He called his attorneys, his accountants, and his managers and announced that he was going to channel his assets into hospitals and research and mission work. And on that day, John D. Rockefeller established his foundation. His financial assistance led to the discovery of penicillin of cures for malaria, a cure for tuberculosis, cure for diphtheria, and I can give you the cures we don't have the time. From that day on, Rockefeller began to give back a portion of all he earned, and his body chemistry actually changed. So he significantly got better. He actually made a profession of faith and was baptized into Christ, and he attended church every Sunday and even taught Sunday school until the day he died at the Baptist church. He was a Sunday school teacher for the kids at the Baptist church. They all loved him. Oh, by the way, haven't been told he was gonna die at 54. He lived to 97 years old. Money is a very hard subject to talk about. The problem is, everybody thinks you're going to be begging for money because all the television, well, not all the television preachers, there are many television preachers like, to, send me your money. That isn't what God's talking about. You're not doing it out of obligation, you're doing it out of love for our Heavenly Father. Everything I got is His. Now, when I, don't laugh about this. When I first became a Christian, I couldn't see the whole 10%. Does that make sense? Money was tight. I was, you know, I was young, right? 14 and a half, right? And so I started off at 2%. Then I went to 3%. Then I went to like 6%. I never missed it. But I had to build up to it because, I mean, I was eating, I was really poor. I mean, I was emancipated really young and I was really poor. But you know, they are right about something. I, and you're all going to laugh. You all know where I wear boots. I, I was doing the math on some of my boots. Some of them were 13 to 15 years old. Now, I polish them. They look nice, right? But God, God does make things last. What I need to have work works. What I don't need to have work disappears. 
if it's all his and you give it away, so be it. See, you're the, I'm not hitting you with both shotguns and yelling and screaming. I'm just being honest because this is what we're covering today. But we don't back away from this. If you ask a question, we do requested sermons. It will be interesting, folks, to see how many questions or comments we get on the internet. Did, did you know that people actually send things in? They request things and they send questions? <sighs> Translation from foreign countries does not always equal something I understand. So I've had to go back. We had, a, we had a breakthrough sign. The sign's just going hilarious. People are going bonkers over the sign. And every once in a while they go bonkers over what we do. We might be small today, but the message is still the same. It's God's money, not ours, and chill out, right? Far too often we look at it's ours. And yes, we are to be good stewards. Do not get me wrong. Freezing pipes are not fun. They are terrible to deal with. You have to take care of them. You're, you're, you can't just say, okay, God, I want a new car. No, you got to take care of what you got. Then he rewards. This is not prosperity. This is just looking at God's word. What does he say about money? Now, we need to close so you can all get to somewhere warm, right? I had the temperature cranked up last night, checking on it. Had the snow off the ramp for you so you didn't slip and fall, right? So you're all going to go home and get warm, right? Did you know it's colder here than the North Pole? No, it is. It's colder here than the North Pole. We're North Dakotans. We'll survive. But I guarantee you the 911 and all that other stuff are very busy, so keep them in your prayer. They're dealing with stuff that they should never have to deal with, okay? You know, remember that we're called to be better, kinder, nicer. And I will tell you, in today's world of terrible service, sometimes it's very hard, right? But make them nervous, smile at them. They don't know why you're smiling. Let's close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for those who are here today. We thank you for those who are on the internet. We thank you for those in just who will be touched by this message. You guided, directed, empowered it. Now may it work on our hearts, work on our minds, work on our souls. May we understand that we are to be a light to the world, not a baseball bat. Guide us, direct us, empower us in your son's most precious name. Amen.